I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grayson. This season, we are going deep into the lives of people who have left our urbanized, industrialized world behind and turned to human history to create radically different existences in the 21st century. We have some incredible guests this season. This week, Ayana Young. She is the founder of the For the Wild Collective. Uh, From her handle cabin in Northern California. She not only hosts the For the Wild podcast, where she interviews some of the greatest minds of the environmental movement, but she is also the founder of the One Million Redwoods Project, which is using biomimetic reforestation to preserve Cascadia's temperate rainforest. You're going to hear more about that and all of the exciting projects she's working on in just a second. But the reason why I loved talking to her so much and why I think her interview has so much... uh, urgency and relevancy this week is, as many of you know, we're here in California. I'm here in Los Angeles. Uh, There are horrible wildfires, a lot of death and destruction, unfortunately, um, going on right now. And I think for a lot of us, you know, around the world, we see what's going on and it drives this desire that we have to escape somewhere and to find a safe place and to go find that cabin in the woods and learn how to, you know, have all those apocalypse skills. Um, But really, and as Ayana and I talk about, there's really a greater mission here. And, And she talks about this journey that she had to really first find that safe place and how she moved beyond that to really find a greater purpose. And, um, that, this really is about, there, there's a really big picture that we need to all look at here. It's not just about us and our own journey. So I think you're going to really enjoy the show. Please, if you are, uh, you know, really into the episode so far, please go on iTunes, leave us a rating and review. I would so appreciate it. It really helps me get astounding and amazing, thought-provoking guests like Ayana. Uh, if you want to know how I am uncivilizing in my own life, a lot has changed for me this year here in Los Angeles. Uh, you can follow my Instagram page. That is at Jennifer Grayson one to see what I am up to. That's it from me. And I will see you soon with another episode. I'm here today with Ayana Young, founder of the For the Wild Collective, which encompasses the One Million Redwoods Project and For the Wild Podcast. Ayana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. I know this has been a long time coming. So I wonder, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if we could just start off by having you set the stage for us, because I've been imagining how you live and where you live for so long. So where are you speaking to me mm. from today? And can you describe for our listeners, you know, where you are, what you're looking at, what's your home and your setup like? Oh, absolutely. Um, Well, I'm speaking to you from the little cabin that could, which is my nickname for this little spruce cabin that uh, I built with um, one of my, my dear collaborators about, I guess, three winters ago now. And it's a little 200 square foot all wood cabin with some redwood trim from the land because where the cabin is is in the midst of the coastal redwood mountain range in northern california and 
it's a really spectacularly beautiful place with redwoods and madrone and canyon oak and tan oak and douglas fir and manzanita huckleberry just to name a few of the characters that grow here and the majority of this land has been logged previously around um, I think the first logging in most of this area was in the late 1800s and then again in the 1950s and then again in the 80s at least the the acreage that's around me and then um, a lot of the land is still logged so it is considered a timber production zone area with working forest as the timber companies call it and I've really learned a lot about hmm, seeing the beauty in second third fourth growth forest and really sitting with the forest as they the cast of characters or the community of forest transition um, and as they grow and evolve so so yeah I'm in my little cabin which is where I do all the podcast out of it's it was actually the first building here at Cougar Mountain that that we built and I lived in it and basically anybody who's ever been to Cougar Mountain sleeps in it <laughs> my dear friend Kailea and her brand new baby slept here last night I, I've actually now built myself a little 18 foot um, tiny home but yeah so it's it's pretty magical and and it's also a lot of hard work I mean I know when I first moved here I probably had idealistic views of how long things would take <laughs> but I've learned really quickly that any type of development takes a long time especially when it's on raw land and I'm actually an anti-development person so to be having the balance you know the the people on my shoulders one person saying uh you need hot water you need a roof over your head and then the other side of me saying we need to stop developing. We need to stop using so many resources for our human comforts. And so I always try to live between that space of being able to take care of myself and my needs and the community around me, the human community, but also how does that affect the non-human community? And um, and so Cougar Mountain has taught me so much about that. And I could honestly go on for probably an hour about where I live, but I'll pause there and, and just see if there's anything any direction you want me to take. Yeah, with that. no, I love listening to it. I, I can feel like I'm there. Uh, so, and mm. I, I love that you're talking about at what point is it really enough, you know? And because mm. I, I think a lot of us, I idealize that you're in this little cabin in the middle of the woods and not realize mm -hmm. that even that takes a tremendous amount of resources. Um, so, <sighs> yeah. you know, and and I also, I, I want to touch actually, I want to go back to what you said about when you first got there. Um, and how, mm -hmm. well, let me just I, quote an Instagram post that I came across recently. You said, um, when you started this endeavor, you were gloriously living in a wet tent that you were, quote, <laughs> so lost and damn naive when I started this endeavor. And so I, yeah. would, I hope you could just share a little bit of, you know, what were you naive about? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I love thinking back to those times. I actually really miss when my life was more physically challenging in that way um, because there was such, gosh, it was just so incredible to be challenged by the elements and to be challenged by life in a physical sense, especially for somebody like me who grew up 
in a suburban area in Southern California, actually, and really didn't have access to nature. It was mostly strip malls upon strip malls upon strip malls. And uh, and turning on a light in a bathroom with running water was really nothing that I even considered. I didn't even think that that was special. I didn't even understand the infrastructure that it took to even get water to a faucet, to even t- have hot water. Um, yeah, and of course. So what town, what town were you from in Southern yeah. California? Yeah, I grew up in Seal Beach, California, which was in Orange County or is in Orange County. And yeah, I grew up there and and I think I always felt a kind of loneliness, but I didn't understand it because I didn't have the I just didn't have a grander understanding, a meta view of the earth and, and politics and natural resources and climate change. And I didn't understand all of that, but I, I knew I felt this loneliness, this kind of unfulfillment. And I moved around a lot in my early 20s. And at some point, something shifted. And, and that's a whole story in and of itself that brought me out to the forest. And so I, I came here with so many ideas of grandeur and, oh yeah, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And, and, and really pretty human supremacist, I'd say it was really about human and what, and not just me, but it didn't really matter. It was about how to make a life for the humans. And when I was, and that really shifted a lot from being here Um, And so the first thing I did when we came here, because it's just raw land. And what I mean by raw is that there's no, there was no uh, infrastructure in terms of running water, electricity, buildings. It was just a piece of land that had been logged a few times and there was roads and there was some landings where they would drag the logs down. So where I'm sitting right now is actually an area that was really, really compacted. And it was kind of this, um, I would say, if you hear my dog barking in the background, she's, she's outside. I do. <laughs> and so, yeah, her name's Little Bear. And so there's really this area that was just so compacted where they'd actually drag the old growth redwood down. And this is where the big trucks would then take the logs out. So it's this energetically you could imagine what this space was and this is where we decided to build this little cabin okay so let me just stop you there for one second mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. how old are you Ayana? i'm 31 okay you're 31 so how old are you did you just buy this piece of land you said we so who were you with yeah so uh, i was with march who is um still a collaborator but at the time he was also my life partner romantic partner. And so we had purchased the land back in, I think I was, gosh, I'm like, was I 26 at that point? Uh, 27, something like that. I, I was probably 26 or 27. Yeah. Oh gosh. And where I haven't were thought you about living? So we were actually living in Pennsylvania in this old farmhouse from the 1800s that he grew up in that was his parents' house. So we were living upstairs above the kitchen of his parents' house with really no privacy. I still remember hearing his dad. I could always knew when his dad was going to crack an egg because I literally could like hear the cracking of the egg in a pan through the floorboards <laughs> of the bedroom that we lived in. It wow. was really a funny time. But it, it was really beautiful too because 
his parents were so loving and taught me a lot about romantic love. And, and so it was a really, really sweet period. And actually, that was the time that we created Unlearn and Rewild podcast, which now is for the wild podcast. But that's where that was birthed was uh, we were we were actually living in Oregon on this little this little cedar cabin in the mountains about 30 minutes northwest of Portland. And that's really where I fell in love with the forest and spent so much time with the forest. And we had a little organic farm up there. And so I learned a lot about plants and seeds and I was studying herbalism. And we had left there because of this fear of the radiation from Fukushima. And so, yeah, we moved back to Pennsylvania, really just searching for the promised land, so to speak, looking for that safe space in the earth that we could survive the end of times together in. And honestly, the best part of that time was realizing that that place doesn't exist, that there is no place that isn't toxic, that there is no place that hasn't been raped by industrial civilization. It actually doesn't exist. I mean, even the Arctic is being drilled. So it's really, it was a really harsh wake up call, but it was actually really a medicine that I needed because all of the focus that I was putting on my own individual life and my own individual survival really clouded the mission of working in service of something greater than myself. Wow. And when I was able to realize, oh, wow, there's actually nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. I can stop focusing on my own human supremacist mindset. And I can just realize that the bottom line is I'm going to die. Whether it's tomorrow, whether it's in 10, 50, 60 years, whether it's because of a toxic spill from Fukushima or if it's because who knows what my heart stops. I don't know. But I had to really get out of this mindset that I need to keep myself alive at any cost. And that's really what civilization is doing right now is civilization, modern civilization is trying to keep itself alive at any cost. And what any cost is, is the earth and all of the resources that are left at any cost is the last salmon at any cost is the last orcas that's what we're doing to keep this the civilization alive and so I really had to um I really had to come to terms with my own mortality and with the fact that the earth is really sick and yes of course there are places that still have more resources than others there are places with more fresh water than others there's no doubt that is true but even in the places with fresh water, even in the places with, um, you know, with abundance or whatnot, those places are still being mined and drilled and, and, you know, toxicity spilled into them. And so, yeah, like I was saying, it was a really good wake up call because I was able to, and like I say this a lot if there's nowhere to hide, then it allowed me to stand where I love and fight like hell for that, that place. And so for me, the temperate rainforest was what called me. It was Northern California, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, Alaska, this whole ecosystem called me back and said, now that you're over your own little life, you will work for us. And I said, okay, put me to work. What do you need me to do? And, and that's what brought me to Cougar Mountain. And, 
and really what has shaped what I'm doing, how I'm living my life here. And, and it's a constant battle. I mean, I, I don't, I don't ever wake up and go, okay, I've figured it out. I'm not a human supremacist. I got everything good. I'm not in a part of civilization. Not at all. I mean, every day I, I, I feel challenged every day. I feel a little bit of shame and guilt and really question how my existence is complicit in the system that I'm trying to fight and the hypocrisy in that and the juxtaposition in that and the frustration in that, that my gosh, I really just want to be doing this, but oh my goodness, I'm actually, I can't, yes, I can point the finger at other people, but I also have to point the finger at myself. And that doesn't mean that I'm a bad person, but I just really believe that if we don't truth tell, if we don't truth tell to ourselves, if we don't truth tell to other people, we're never going to figure a way out if we're just telling each other half truths. If we're just saying, oh, well, it's really not our fault. It's the system. Or it's really not us. It's them. It's like, no, no. At this point, it's all of us. And if we're not going to look at that, then we're really not going to even have a chance at solving some of the problems. But I also believe that in in so many ways, we actually aren't going to solve a lot of the problems. Um, I, I don't even actually think we're trying to solve the problems at this point, but I don't want to go too far down that road because um, I want to stay on track with what you asked me. Yeah, but we're going to get there. About. Yeah, we're going to get there. Yeah, and it, you yeah. know, I, I love how you're talking about this idea of human supremacy and even your own sense, which is something that I've had too, which is like, you know, you've it's almost like you're the hero in your own apocalyptic story. And so many of us start out on this journey thinking, well, you know, we're going to survive where it's going to be like, you know, my side of the mountain and and how can I mm-hmm. buffer myself? And it sounds like you, that's how you started out. And then you had this real shift in mindset, which is something that I'm starting to see now too, which is like, mm-hmm. no, how can, how can I serve the highest purpose? How can I actually help? Mm-hmm. And so what, I want to get to the story of how you get to you got to um, where you are now, and we're going to get there. But what do you remember? Was there like a did a light bulb go off, or was it a gradual sort of evolution and thought? When you say that, all of a sudden you realized, you know, like there you're not safe anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it was an evolution, but there was a breaking point. Kind of the what is it the the straw that broke the camel's back? So I was in a sense kind of coming to that conclusion, perhaps, but I went down to New Zealand because at that point I thought New Zealand was the, the safe place. I thought, oh, okay, the, the toxicity isn't going to make it to the Southern hemisphere as quickly. And I, you know, I had all these statistics. I was kind of a nerd in that, in that sense of researching. So you really <laughs> thought the end was coming. And, I mean, am I putting words into your mouth? Oh, it sounds like you were really, Oh no, no, I, yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, I don't not think the end is coming anymore. I think ends are here every day. Yeah. <laughs> and we are seeing the end. We're, we're, you know, in California, the end of salmon has come and gone. The end of salmon in Oregon, the end of salmon in Washington, the end of salmon in British Columbia now is the end of salmon in Alaska. The end is coming all the time. And I don't not believe that. I just don't think it is this... <coughs> massive um fireball that's coming for the earth and then everything's going to stop all at once i think we're in the anthropocene extinction 200 species a day are going extinct so the end for those species is is here and i don't want to downplay that that the end is somehow in the future or the end isn't really coming in that way 
And I also don't pretend to know anymore. I think at the time I, in the space I was before, I was just so afraid. I was so afraid because at that point in my journey, so to speak, I was really just awakening to all the realities. I was like, oh my gosh, recycling. And then I was like, oh no, recycling is just this little bit. And then you start opening up to massive resource extraction, fracking, tar sands, uh, you know, all the extreme fossil fuel extraction methods. You start opening up to the global capitalist market. You start opening up to, oh my goodness, just the ways in which imperialism and colonialism and slavery is still so alive and well in this dominant culture that has now taken over pretty much every square inch of the planet. I mean, you can go to even little villages and somehow there's Coca-Cola signs. So right. um, I think that, yeah, when I was when I was awakening to these realities, it was so frightening to me because my whole conditioning and my whole existence of what I knew, I realized none of that's real. None of that's true. It's been this lie to keep me in on this consumer treadmill. And when I stopped, when I got off the consumer treadmill, I was freaked out. I was really, really freaked out. So when, when you yeah, say off the consumer the, treadmill, what do you mean? Like mm-hmm. you just started living off grid or what, what does that mean? Well, at the time I, yeah, well, I started living off the grid, but I, I, there was a number of things that I shifted. Um, so I grew up in Orange County. And I lived in LA for a number of years too. And, and I also lived in New York City. And in those times, my life was really about getting out of bed, going to the coffee shop, getting my one use cup, going to the next shop. It wasn't even that I was trying yeah. to shop every day. It's just that my life was actually about shopping and taking my dry cleaning and doing my this. And you can't and it was, not shop. And like, it, yeah. Yeah. You can. Yeah, you're literally like your life is is meant to be a consumer in spaces like that. You wake up and every time you leave the house, you're going to the bank, you're going to the post office, you're filling up your car, you're, you know, you, you, you're going to Target, you're returning the thing at Walmart. I mean, it's just like everywhere you're, go, you're go, you know, I, at least for me, I was kind of going just from store to store. And of course, like I was also going to school and I, it's not that, that that's all I did all day long, but just that my life was set up to consume things from mostly box stores. And then sure, I got a little more organic. And so the box stores had a different name, like a co-op. But the bottom line is, you walk into a Whole Foods or a co-op, I mean, sure, maybe it's a little bit better than a Ralph's. But at the at the end of the day, turn over the ingredients and in most of the processed foods. Most of the processed foods in organic stores is palm oil, which is burning the forest in Sumatra and um, Southeast Asia and killing the orangutan. So I just I just want us to really look at these things realistically. And just because we're drinking green juice with adaptogens, where does that come from? Where does that come from? It's not, it's not, oh, it's not necessarily, yeah, sure, it could be better than Coca-Cola in the sense that maybe it's not high fructose corn syrup and it's not hurting our bodies in the same way and it's not going to the sewer and, and so on and so forth. So I don't want to say that it's not better at all, but it's not the answer. It's not as if that somehow is the golden ticket that's going to get us out of the mess. It's not freedom. And, and I feel that it's not freedom. And yeah. neither are honestly our renewable energy and neither is solar panels as right. much as I know so many of us want to hope and pray and, and just, oh, we want it so bad. We want a solution 
so bad. We want our lifestyles to keep going so bad that we hope and pray that there's wind energy and solar that's going to save the day and we can still live these lifestyles without consequence. That's not possible. It's actually not possible to have a civilized modern existence without extreme resource extraction at this point. And I, th- I just think it's really important that we, that we look at that and, and not try to, um, I just not try to lie to ourselves about what really is happening. There comes a point for most of us on this path where we realize that we can't clean energy our way out of this, that the civilization we live in is not just broken, but inherently flawed. Um, and that, you know, I just, I think, and why I started this podcast is because there is no paradigm in which this works. I, I, mm-hmm. I really do believe that. I mean, I think there's a better version of it, but you know what? I, you know what I would love to ask you, and then we'll get back to where you were in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you know, I really do want to trace this path, but so I was, mm-hmm. I think I told you we were talking off, um, Mike before that the report came out today from the IPCC saying that climate change is the most dire effects are coming earlier than we thought probably by 2040. Um, and you know, I was listening to some of your Bill McKibben podcast that you had done. Uh, was that last year? Yeah. I, yeah. It was, I think last spring. Yeah. Talking about climate change and, you know, he was talking about this opportunity we have for renewable energy and, um, you know, that these things can lead to change. And you asked a question that I that has literally haunted me for a year, Ayana, and I wanted, I could hear you itching to answer it yourself. So I'm going to just ask you, which is you said, <laughs> um, you know, obviously we don't want to see this. I'm going to paraphrase you. You said, we don't want to see our civilization mm-hmm. come crashing down and have innocent people die. But, and I quote, do we really want to protect the civilization that has wrought so much havoc on earth in so many ways, is it possible that civiliz- civilization collapsing in the way it is now would actually be beneficial to not just other creatures and species, but humans as well? So I'm going to ask you. Yeah. Um, well, I think you probably know my my <laughs> opinion on that. I think about some of the Sariaku women down in the Amazon and in Ecuador who are fierce warriors and activists fighting for their native lands. And they are literally being threatened. Their lives are being threatened for speaking out against Exxon and Shell and BP and their territories are being completely destroyed destroyed with oil spills and extraction and there are some people who have been murdered and a lot of these women are they have bricks thrown through their windows and their children are even threatened and so would the collapse of modern civilization help the Sariaku these women that are being threatened by oil companies absolutely if there's no oil being drilled in their territories anymore that would be a victory that would be a huge victory for them. Um, I think about what are we really trying to 
save here? Like, can we really just put a pencil to paper and say, what are we trying to save? Are we trying to save Target, Walmart, uh, Costco? What are we trying to save? Chuck E. Cheese? What are we, are we, are we only trying to save jazz clubs? I, I really actually want to know what we're fighting so hard for. Are we trying to save hot water for our showers, refrigeration for our food? It's just so deep. There's so much in this modern civilization that is completely unnecessary that nobody really cares that much about that it's really, I think, just a way to fill the void. You know, all of this plastic crap. I mean, I want to want to cuss, but all this plastic stuff that's just filled, warehouses are being filled with it. For what? So so is that more important than orcas? Because that's what we're, that's our complicity. That's actually what we're voting for with our complicity and how we live our lives is what we're really saying is all of this BS of civilization is more important than all other living life forms. And I was frustrated with the Bill McKibben episode because I think anybody who tries to take an easy out on renewable energy is really just placating and isn't why are we even having this kind of conversations anymore? Um, well, that's, that's just not the full truth. And in one way, I say, okay, sure, as a transition, we can use renewable energy. It is a transition. But the other thing that hardly anybody talks about is it's an entire new industry with all new factories and new infrastructure and new mining projects and new fossil fuel extraction projects just to build the quote-unquote renewable items that you need for a system and the batteries. The batteries are not renewable. So I, I just, it frustrates me that we're not actually talking about it. We're not talking about it in a way that's actually looking at all of the pieces and so in terms of saving this civilization, I don't care about all this BS consumer stuff. Yeah, sure. Are there certain things that I like? Of course. Do I have my little vices? No doubt. No doubt. There, I love going to little co-ops and health food stores and getting my little tricks and treats. And I mean, I'm, I'm a human just like everybody else. We do like comfort. We like things that taste good. I, I'm a total sugar sugar addict that I'm trying to get myself, uh, <laughs> try to pull myself away from right now. So I, I'm not saying this because I figured it out or I feel like I'm, I, I understand the way out. I just want to actually have a real conversation about it. I just actually want to talk about what it really means to have a renewable, to plug a modern lifestyle into a renewable outlet and how that changes nothing. Does it change slavery? No. Who, who are making the solar panels? Where are the solar panels? Where are the rare earth minerals being mined? Right. Well, I know one the of the trash places. Going? That, and where is the trash going? Right. Like th one of the interviews I just did with Jacinda Mack a few months ago. She's a New Hulk woman from British Columbia. Amazing woman, and she can't fish traditionally on the Fraser River anymore because of all of the toxic uh, tailings, uh, water, the, all the toxic water that's used in mining projects for the rare earth minerals. And so is it right for me to have a quote, just transition in Northern California while I poison just into max territory. And now none of her people can eat, eat their salmon anymore. And their lands are totally spoiled so that I can have a solar panel. Is that really what we're talking about? And, and I want to just ask again, what are we trying to save about civilization? And I also want to be careful because I know that 
at this point, globally, we rely on the system that's killing everything. And that's really a conundrum because I know people go, well, what about jobs? And what about how do, how do, what about, you know, medical hospitals? I mean, there, there's so many questions. And so I don't think it's just a blanket statement of like, all right, throw out industrial civilization and now we can just walk forward. Well, what are we going to do? I mean, and there's so much there. And I think we really have to be creative right now. And we really have to be thinking about new systems. And I think we do need to be working within the system because the system is still here. Because honestly, not enough of us at this point want a change. Not enough of us want it. Not enough of us want to give up our creature comforts. Not enough of us want to give up this modern lifestyle. And so we're not going to do it until we either have to or until there's some magical consciousness shift, which I'm not really placing all my bets on at this point in the in the game. But I think that we need to look at things honestly. And like I said, I don't think there's some blanket solution that if we took away industrial civilization, somehow everybody would be hunky-dory and nobody would have oppression and everybody would be you know, filled up with their permaculture garden. Like that, that's also not the truth. But, um, but I certainly do not think that just creating a whole entire new industry with new infrastructure and new wires and new cables and new copper and new this and new that, you know, what are we doing? What are we really doing here? And why aren't we actually talking about the resources it's going to take to get us to this new system? And that doesn't mean that Maybe we look at all the resources and we still decide in an intelligent way that it is the way we should be going. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that we all need to live a hell of a lot simpler. And when I'm talking about all, I'm talking about some of the people that I'm sure are listening to this that are listening to this with their iPods and their iPhones. I have one. I have one right here on my desk. I'm, I have an iPhone, so I'm one of, I'm one of y'all who have one too. But um, for all of us who have privilege and positionality and have ways to consume, um, we need to really look at ourselves and think about how we can simplify majorly. If we, if you know, if we say we care, if we actually care about the earth. If we don't care about the earth, then I guess we could just keep running it into the ground because that's right, the path it's, that we're it's, on. It's and either going to come crashing so, down if we yeah. take steps or, you know, I mean, it's at some point, I hate to say it, but right. you know, this shit's going to hit the fan either way. So I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I would rather be on that path now. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just, to be honest, I don't know what other way there is than to just keep moving forward. And so I, I just want to. Let, let, let's go back to your story because, you know, you, mm-hmm. you had this shift and you started to say, well, okay, so you're in New Zealand mm-hmm. um, and you say, what is the path for me to a, for a simpler life? And then, and then where did you go from well, there? Yeah. How did you get to where you are now? Yeah. So I already was on this path to simplicity, uh, so to speak, or trying to Really, what I was trying to do was strip myself down. I was trying to strip the conditioning and the consumer addiction. I, I was I was literally trying to ex, uh, detox consumer addiction out of my body, and and so it's I mean it's even beyond just simple. 
I think there's there's a psychological aspect, huge, huge psychological aspect to it. So I was in New Zealand thinking that was the promised land. And I, of course, met the activists of New Zealand. And I kept seeing these signs with a skull and crossbones saying no 1080, no 1080. So I finally asked somebody, well, what is this 1080 stuff? And they explained that it is a poison that's actually created in a lab in Alabama that New Zealand's government buys a shit ton of. And they aerial drop it over all of the public national forest lands in New Zealand. They also put it on private land unless you say no, which is a big issue because if your neighbor does, it doesn't really matter if you say no. Um, and it gets into the waters. And what they say that it's for is to kill the possums that are eating the native birds. But you could imagine if you're aerial dropping poison with attractants in it, well, the birds are going to eat it and so are the deer and so are everything else and the fish that's in the water. And so in the places where they have aerial dropped this poison, the people who live there that I, I spoke to, many people said it takes three or four years of silence before any birds even come back because it's a mass genocide in those areas and the highest cancer rates in the country are by the national forest and the parks, which is where most of the poisons are aerial dropped. And that was such a shock to me at the time. And I was so, I was just floored, slapped in the face. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I went all the way across the world to a little island thinking that that was the place that would have the least toxicity just to find out that the highest cancer rates were by the land. They weren't by the, they weren't even by the factories. I, I just couldn't, it was, it was such a, oh my gosh, I was such a, an awakening. And so at that, that was the straw that broke the camel's back because I was like, oh my gosh, we can't escape from it. We are part of it. We are complicit to it. We are, we are in it. We, I can't run away from it. And even the way that I look at anarchy and collapsitarians and like apocalyptic people. And, I, and like I said, I, I very much was in that boat. And this idea that somehow you can be out of it. Somehow you can be the one who isn't in the system. It's like that isn't the case anymore. Maybe at some point you could be out of it. But we're all in it. We're all in it. Let's just look at it. Let's just ex let's not accept it in the sense that we accept and we do nothing, but let's accept that we are not above or we can't escape and we can't run away. We actually have to deal with it. We actually all, if we choose to look in the mirror, look at, look at the storm eye to eye and say, wow, this is real. This is here. This is my role in it. And what are some ways to start being creative? using all of our talents and our artistry and our passions and start to start to break through it and I think so yeah so I mean so all of that started leading me on this path and and I knew that I wanted to be in the temperate rainforest and I ended up finding a program in restoration ecology at the University of Victoria that I went to so I wanted some tangible tool tools to be able to learn how to restore forest lands. Although I have to say, I've learned so much more just being with the forest and 
and just observation, I really want to tell people that, that you don't have to go to school. You don't have to go to college. You don't have to be a PhD. You don't have to be a scientist to understand the way ecosystems work, at least how humans can understand it. You don't need to, I really believe biologically, we know how to be earth stewards. If you spend enough time with a creek, you know how it, how, you know, you know how it rises and falls. You know if there's fish in it or not. You can tell if erosion is coming in because of, of, from a logged bank. These are tools that we all have if we slow down enough, if we prioritize. And I know that people are busy and, and, and we can keep using the busy excuse all we want until we have no, no other species left. You know, it's like we can make excuses all we want. Every, every day we can come up with a new one. Um, and, you know, like I said, most people will continue to do that. And it's really sad and it's extremely frustrating as, you know, for me who is seeing and not and we're not all seeing the end of the world because like, for instance, in Los Angeles, you've already lost it. You've already lost the world that was that land in so many ways. Sure, there's little pieces here and there, but for the most part, you're not seeing the destruction of the earth. Um, right in front of you and maybe there's some undeveloped lands that are are being developed and, and that that but like in places like Alaska for instance they're in the presence of what they're losing every day this you know there are p- intact places very few but there are some in the world and they're literally watching the collapse the apocalypse of entire ecosystems right now I mean I think about grizzly bears California, you, California, grizzly bear on our flag. Why? Because we had grizzly bears here. There's no grizzly bears in California, Oregon, Washington. I mean, maybe there's a few in Washington. I don't think so. And now, you know, I visited the place in Canada that has the most grizzly bears and bald eagles in the world. And they're developing a mining site there on the Chilkat River. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's insanity. It's actually insanity what we're doing. We are pushing everything to the cusp and we can't stop because for the most part, the majority of us are so addicted to civilization that we are blinded and we prioritize ourselves and civilization over everything else. And, and that's, that's really what's happening. And I know people don't want to believe that and they don't want to believe that they're a part of it. But I will say right here, I'm definitely a part of the Anthropocene. I absolutely, I absolutely contribute to it. And that doesn't mean that I, I hate myself. What that means is that I just want to be more accountable and I actually want to acknowledge my role in it so that I can potentially change. Because if, if I'm ever going to acknowledge my role, then I'm never going to change. Right. And I think part of the problem is for so many of us who live in Los Angeles and, and other big places where we've lost, we've lost this connection. You know, I mean, we don't, mm-hmm. like I think about where I am right now. Um, I live in this little slice of Laurel Canyon and there's a preserved 17 acres across from me. And uh, there's supposedly an untagged mountain lion in there, which, you know, causes a lot of distress. Like the other day, there was supposedly a mountain 
lion sighting and the school was shut down. Uh, my daughter's school, they were on lockdown because they wow. saw a mountain lion. And so like, we don't even know what's normal anymore. Mm. You know, and so like, mm-hmm. and there are ch- generations of children being raised to think of of all of these creatures as something we see in zoos. And, you know, um, yeah, we just, it's, it's not, it's not even so much as like a, a conscious choice to be a part of this is that there is no other alternative for so many people. They don't see it yet. And so I, I want to get back to your story because mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting. You talk about how you came into the wilderness and you just listened mm-hmm. when, you know, the, before the One Million Redwoods project yeah. happened. And I want to, I'd love to hear you talk about how that happened because, you know, to a lot of people in the modern world, I mean, that almost sounds crazy. It doesn't to me because I, I mm. know what it means to have that connection when you're in a wild place and you can literally hear the trees talking to you. You know, I mean, that experience has happened mm-hmm. to me before, so I understand mm-hmm. that, but to other people, it doesn't. So can you talk about that and how that led to the work you're doing now? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did and I get that I right? Is that what disclaimer. happened? I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely, I I think that, I think there was multiple steps and, you know, and I just want to make a disclaimer that I don't think the answer is for everyone to move to the wilderness or for everybody to move to wherever and start a big farm or, or, or whatever we think is quote unquote, the way forward. I don't, I don't think that it's everybody's path. I think that it was my path. I think maybe many other people will find that that they have a similar path. And, and then I think there's going to be people whose path is to stay in cities and to organize because one thing about cities is what you have a lot of is humans. And that's a resource in and of itself because being able to organize large numbers of people to actually demand change, you need to have connections. You need to have meeting places. You need to be able to get people together. And a lot of times in rural areas, it's really challenging to get a hundred people together when they're having to drive an hour and leave the land and get through the mud holes and, you know, deal with the the tree that just came down. I mean, there's a lot more challenges to organize people in a countryside rural setting. We're in the city, whether it's LA or New York city or wherever Seattle, you have, like I said, you have meeting spaces, you have, you have a lot more chance for, social revolution, which I think is super exciting. And I hope there's some people listening out there that that is their path because that's extremely needed. We need people to retrofit cities. We need people to really take the charge on stopping the massive importation of goods and exportation of trash and sewage. Like We need to work on that. That is a huge, huge piece of potentially, uh, gosh, I don't want to say uncivilizing but I want to say a new way forward like there's a lot in there and for me with you know that wasn't my path my path was with the forest and I feel like in so many ways I chose this path but I also very much know that I was chosen to do this work and that doesn't make me special I think we actually all have been chosen to do certain work and we just need to listen and we need to be able to tap into our intuition and our instinct, which is really challenging because we've been conditioned to 
not listen to our intuition. We've been conditioned to not to actually not value our intuition, that it's not something real or important. So for me, that intuition instinct led me to the wilderness and it's been it's been such an incredible love affair with gosh oh my gosh there's been ups and downs you know just imagine like any other great love there's the honeymoon phase there's getting to know each other there's all the excitement of lying awake in bed with the other person but for me it was the forest and and giggling and laughing and and all, all of that joy and then there was the time that came when I was like, what the hell? What the hell? What's going on? What's wrong with you? You're dry. There's a drought. You're not, you're a second growth for us. You're a third growth for us. You're not good enough. You know, whatever, <laughs> like whatever we do when we get comfortable in relationships. And, and I went through that, you know, especially with Cougar Mountain where I live, I went through that of like, what have I done? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I did this. And this isn't, you're not, and, and really telling the forest in so many ways, like the forest wasn't good enough that they, that the forest, you know, is sick. And it's true, the forest is sick and the forest isn't old growth anymore, which most of the forest isn't old growth. There's only 4% of all old growth redwood left in a very small uh, uh, location for redwoods and only 2.5% of that is protected. And so I was really dealing with all of this mm, human conditioning around my relationship with the wilderness and also just being able to be comforted without certain modern conveniences or phones or internet anything like that and and it wasn't that it's not that that's easy it wasn't easy for me it's just that I had and I still have a really really intense drive a re I'm super super ambitious when it comes to my relationship with the forest hence why I know I was chosen I chose this way because it's not something that just fell into my lap I wasn't raised this way I I hadn't camped until I was 25 years old. I, I didn't know. I didn't, I wasn't, wow. this wasn't my modus operandi. And so at this point, the wilderness has taught me so much, but I'd say one of the most important lessons I've learned is unconditional love and really, really learning what unconditional love looks like in the face of collapse, in the face of the Anthropocene, in the face of climate change, how how to love unconditionally and that ties directly to me into how to have a reciprocal relationship with the earth and I think that can happen anywhere I don't think you need to be in a forest or a wilderness or a desert or a you know a savanna or you don't need to be anywhere particular to be in reciprocity but the reciprocity and the gratitude, I think, are really what cut through the human supremacist mindset. Because if I'm in a relationship with the forest, I will, I'll check in, I'll care, I'll see if they're sick, I'll see what can I do? What can I do to support? How can I give myself? How can I give my resources? How can I give my attention, my energy? It's like caring for your sick child or caring for your mother, or caring for your lover. I mean, really, I like to put, I really like to put the frame of human relationships on an earth relationship, because for me, they're really similar. And, and that's, and that is in this relationship. And, you know, I've been building it for years. And I remember, even when I was living in Oregon, and I took my first 
a natural medicine class, my first herbalist class in Portland. And I remember my teacher at the time, Cascade Anderson Geller, who has since passed, she was telling us how she talks to plants. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, whoa, she talks to plants. And she was kind of voicing us what the plants were telling her and was saying. And I was so intrigued, but I kind of like didn't fully believe it because I am, you know, an an academic person. I, but I also like have a magical side to me, but I'm not all flowers and cupcakes all the time. I definitely have a real rawness. And so I was like, well, I don't know. And, and I tried and a few times I'm like, this isn't, I don't know. Am I talking to this tree? Is this tree talking back? Am I, do I wait around for it to say hello? You know, I really was really going through like, how do I actually communicate with trees at that time? And what I realized is the longer that I, the, the more priority I gave that relationship, the more I fed that relationship, the more that I spent time and, and really committed to the relationship, not because of what I get from it. It's not like, okay, I'm going to commit to this relationship because I expect that I'm going to be a tree talker in, you know, 10 days. No, it's like, I'm just going to commit not for me, but because I know I need to do this. And then at that time, spending so much time in the forest and the wilderness and down dirt roads, I have, I have an incredibly communicative relationship with the earth and with the ocean and with the forest. And at this point, really any landscape I go into and the work that I do is directly in correlation with what I'm told to do. And that's why I do what I do. And that's why I don't hesitate. And that's where the work comes from. For instance, the 1 million redwoods, you know, I didn't come on the scene as some 10 year scientist you know, sitting in my lab for 20 years going, oh, I know the key to restoration. No, I'd been spending a lot of time with the forest. Yeah, I had taken classes at university. That's true. But I'd say that the forest spoke to me and said, we need help. One, you need to protect the ones of us who are standing. And you also need to raise our children and our grandchildren and make sure that they have a space to evolve autonomously. And that's where the whole idea for the One Million Redwoods came up and the native species nursery and restoration and reforestation. But that has grown a lot because when I first started thinking about reforestation, I kind of thought probably what most people think, which is you plant trees in pots and then you plant the pots in the ground. And that's what a lot of our reforestation has looked like is these monocrop plantation forests, which really, if you replaced trees with corn it'd basically be a cornfield but instead it's douglas fir or sitka spruce or even redwood and so i knew okay well that's not the way and i knew i didn't want to just keep using resources keep using resources water plastic pipes plastic pots coconut core perlite for the soil all these things it's like well what why would i do that why would i just use all these resources just to restore a place so i'm you know, stripping some other landscape of their resources to put a resources into a nursery to then do reforestation. And that's how a lot of our world works. Even the things we try to do good, like solar panels, it's just not really that well thought out to actually be something that's renewable and healthy. And so at this point, the One Million Redwoods Project has evolved into, it's still a native species nursery and a living library, but we're really focusing on seed and successional seeding. So this kind of biomimetic reforestation and what I mean by that in biomimicry is how does nature themselves reforest a clear cut 
What do you first start to see pop up? What comes up second? Like I can tell you right now, the first thing that comes up in a clear cut is not a redwood. A redwood is a late successional tree. So plopping a redwood right into a clear cut is not is not the way the forest would do it. Also, trees communicate with each other. Plants are constantly communicating with each, with each other through the mycelial networks of the fungi underneath the soil. We need the soil to be built up. We need these trees to be, and not just trees, we need an entire community of forest. And that's the fungi and that's the lichens and the epiphytes and the understory plants and the bushes and the smaller and the deciduous trees and the conifers. And that's really been such a joy with the One Million Redwoods Project is to get closer and closer and closer with forest's natural evolution and just to learn, well, how might we as humans, how might we as humans make space for the earth, for the forest to regenerate the most holistically? And it's not to say that there isn't any human intervention in what I'm doing. There is human intervention, but I take that human intervention really seriously and I don't take it for granted. I think about it a lot because I don't want to do something where it's like, well, you know, sometimes a lot of times that people try to restore things, you go, oh my gosh, why didn't you just let nature do it? Because man, by the time the humans tried to restore things, they really messed things up even more and burned a lot of fossil fuels in the process. So I'm extremely cautious about how to do this project with integrity, how to develop with integrity, how to grow with integrity. And like I said at the beginning, it's a challenge. There's not an easy answer, but I do think that these challenges are presenting themselves for a reason and we need to listen. And sometimes listening means slowing down. And that's really hard for us in this exponential growth model that we're all living in, in this capitalist culture, consumer culture, where everything's about growth and bigger and better. But we really need to debunk that myth because that's what's gotten us in this mess. Right, right. And I think what you're doing with One Million Redwoods is actually so profound and it ties so much into what we're talking about with human supremacy because you're looking at this holistic approach to replanting forests when all along we've been trying to replant forests so that it has just one end result, which is like capturing carbon mm -hmm. for all the junk that mm -hmm. we put out there. So we haven't mm -hmm. even been looking at it in this holistic way of like, you know, repopulating this whole ecosystem. And it isn't just for our benefit. It's for the benefit of that entire ecosystem. And so I just, I want to applaud the work you're doing. I think it's so amazing. Um, and I, I know we're running out of time. So I was hoping we could just sort of go full circle again. And because I know we started out talk, you talking about when you first came to this land and how naive you were. And I was wondering if maybe you could just give a glimpse, like if this were a movie, like two, you know, like two little shots of what your <laughs> life was like then, how are you living and what's your, what's your day to day like now? Because you sound so mm. fulfilled and so passionate. <laughs> I, um, I just would love that, you know, this, that contrast, mm. I think our listeners would really enjoy it if you have time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I am so grateful for my life and I'm so grateful for the work that I get to do. And in no way is my life some off the grid fantasy and, you know, some beautiful homesteader life, which I actually did can some tomatoes this weekend. So I will have to say I did do that, which I felt so blessed. But I felt blessed to do it because my life has really become not simple. 
my life has become a lot more complex than when I started this whole thing because, well, one, I was younger. And like I said, I was naive and I had these ideas and I thought I didn't, I, I wasn't, um, fully in the comprehension of what was really going on. It, I was, I was starting to learn, you know, I, I had some of the things under my belt, but I really wanted to, in so many ways, run to the, run off into the woods with my partner at the time, March, and, and have this beautiful life and have the podcast and read books and prepare for the apocalypse and have my food storage and, you know, walk in the forest every day and talk to the trees and, and do the One Million Redwoods project. And, and honestly, that was a lot at the time. I thought, I was like, woo, I cannot do more than this. But at this point, my life has really shifted because I have been called into more work and I feel <laughs> exhausted a lot of the time, but the exhaustion doesn't stop me from moving forward. And um, part of the reason, you know, I, I don't have this simple existence is because I've chosen to work within and outside of the system and what I mean by that is I started a nonprofit. I never wanted to start a nonprofit. I <laughs> never wanted to have all the work of the bureaucracy. And I never wanted to be a manager. I never wanted to be a boss or any of those words, which I don't even feel like I'm a boss, but just the responsibilities of what that was. And now I find myself at the helm of this incredible collective for the Wild Collective that, you know, we have 10 or 15 people working every week in this collective that I oversee. And so a lot of my day is talking with people and collaborating and being on the computer a lot. I mean, on Zoom, on Skype, doing my own interviews, uh, thinking about grants and thinking about coalition building. So a lot of my life has become around connecting with other activists and learning how to uplift their work and how to connect the dots because I know that we have strength in numbers and I know that we really need to come together right now and say these are the demands and not feel so siloed as nonprofits or so siloed as uh, different groups or organizations really fighting for the same thing but not even knowing what somebody's doing over the hill. So a lot of my time is spent in these coalition building, uh, connection, con connecting conversations. And, and then, of course, like all the administrative management work of what it takes to do anything large scale. And the One Million Redwoods Project is a large scale reforestation project. And a lot of the work that I've been doing in Alaska and B.C. is large scale conservation projects. And it's a really intense world and I never wanted to do it. Like I said, I, I wanted to move out to the woods to be in my little cabin and, and just do my little projects. And I don't think that there's actually anything wrong. With that. Like, I think if that's what I would have done, and even though I say the word little, I don't mean little in a derogatory way. I think in so many, so many instances, smaller is better. Local is better. That is actually, I think, the way we could get ourselves out of this mess. But for whatever reason, the forest, the earth, I don't know, the stars have just pulled me out of that and said, all right, Ayana, great, keep doing what you're doing, but also add this in. And it's been a really interesting world to, and what I mean by like being pulled out is, I guess in some ways, because of 
the anarchist mindset I was having, I wanted to do the project, the One Million Redwoods project, and I wanted to do the podcast, and I wanted to live in the woods outside of civilization, outside of society, outside of politics, outside of the institutions. But I guess what I mean by like taking on more things is I'm actually at this point very willing to work within and without. And I'm very willing to work with institutions and I'm very willing to work with the U.S. Forest Service and big government agencies and play with the quote big boys. And I don't think it's for everybody, for but for whatever reason, that's what I'm being pulled in to do. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. Let's do it because we don't have the time to be arguing around small things anymore. If we want to have any chance at protecting biodiversity, if we want any chance of protecting underground water aquifers or any chance of protecting wild rivers, we need to get our shit together now. And that means on a local level, that means on a larger level. So if I need to work, if I need to wiggle my way and chameleon myself into a lot of different places, I'm okay to do that. And is it a certain sacrifice from my, you know, woodsy life? Of course it is. But I don't for one minute think that my life is about me. And that's kind of getting back to the previous part of the conversation. Once I dealt with my own mortality and I realized my life isn't about my own survival and my life isn't actually even about my own rewilding. My life isn't actually even about my own fulfillment being in reciprocal relationship with the forest. Those are parts of my life. But really, I, I honestly feel like I'm just another warrior being put out there to do every single thing I possibly can, use any tactic that comes across my desk to protect what we can still protect with integrity. And when I go into these spaces, these more sterile, mostly men, uh, very whatever you want to call it, spaces, I don't walk in there um, trying to hobnob with their language. No, I come in with the voice of the forest. I come in speaking how I speak to you today. I don't cover my belief systems. And you know what I find? People are actually really receptive to truth-telling. At least the people I've been around, people that I never thought would even care about the type of radical forest ethics that I have, they're down to listen. And I think that more and more of us can start to see that, that a lot of the people that are in power and in charge, they're just as confused as everybody else. And they're just as going, holy crap, we are in such a mess. How do we get out of it? And I think a lot of times people are just using the skills that they've been taught. And and just like how some of us on the, you know, whatever green side or whatever you want to call it, we might be like, I don't know, like how to get out of the system. Well, the people who are making the decisions a lot of time are going, we don't know how to get out of the system. Now, of course, there are the people who are just greedy, horrible. They don't care who they're destroying or what they're destroying to get what they want. I actually don't think that is everybody. I think for the most part, humans are selfish, no doubt. And I think for the most part, humans are narcissistic because we've just been conditioned to be that way. But I think that there's a lot of power in being in a number of different spaces 
spreading the message, standing tall, fighting hard, but with love, with integrity, and with fierceness. And I know for me, a lot of the time I thought, oh, I need to be sweet and because and, I'm a woman and I need to be sweet. <laughs> and now I'm like, I don't need to be sweet. I need to be kind. And I think being kind is really important. And we should be kind to people. No doubt we should be kind to people. But I think bringing a fierceness is so important. And I just want to mention Jacinda Mack again, because I think it, it really relates well to this. So I did an episode with her. And it's called The Planetary Cost of Luxury. And one thing that she's done, and I, it's kind of like a similar path that I'm going down now. Again, like she wishes she could live in her traditional territories in a longhouse, catching salmon and picking berries and having this life. But instead, what she's had to do is she has created Uh, I think it's called Native Women for Responsible Mining. And she's not pro-mining at all, but she knows that she has to play a certain game to be able to be in the spaces so that Native women's voices can be heard in those spaces. This is the stuff I'm talking about. It's like some of us are going to have to step into these roles even if we don't want to. And all of us actually need to engage in policies We all need to be going to public meetings around what's happening to the lands, whether it's a park in L.A., whether it's Bears Ears in Utah, whether it's the Tongass National Forest in Alaska. We need to get engaged in civic duty, period. People aren't nobody's going to do it for us. We can't expect things to change. We can't be that angry in the way things are going if we're not willing to actually show up and understand what is actually going on and what are the bills being passed and who are the people passing the bills and why is it that these la- public lands are being taken away or why is it that you know Monsanto poison is being sprayed on parks on the grass in LA these are things that we just can't keep pushing off for other people to do so as much as i do not believe in propping up industrial civilization and capitalism The other part of it is it's still very much alive and well. And I do not believe in running away from our duty and actually being involved and doing something about it. And so I guess, you know, when I say like, what is my life now? It's like my life now. Yeah, I live in the forest, but I'm also very engaged all the time in the politics and the ways in which things actually happen. And I know it sounds crazy that I'm saying this, but I'll just speak for myself. I don't, I didn't under, like even with the Tongass National Forest, where it's another project I'm working on, we are, U.S. citizens are subsidizing the cutting of old growth forest in Alaska on our public lands with our taxpayer dollars, because it's not a profitable industry anymore, but we are actually paying to cut the old growth down. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's absolute insanity. I had never been to a public meeting. So I'm not I'm not coming from like a holier than thou place. I'm literally like telling everybody on this line, I had never been to a public meeting until September of this year, last month. I went to a public meeting with the state of Alaska and the National Forest Service and I listened. And I was so grateful for the community members that were there who had done the research, who were there to be like, but wait, what about PS one, two, three? I'm just pulling out a name. What about, why would you do this? Why would you do that? Questioning. Because the thing is so much stuff gets slid by because nobody's watching. So if we want 
to even have the hopes of biodiversity for an uncivilized world. We need to get involved right now in society, in civilization, and work from the inside out and the outside in. And maybe it's not, and, and I'm not saying everybody needs to do the same role, but we really just cannot rely on other people to do it for us because the majority of the people who are fighting right now are indigenous people and people of color who are already really oppressed. And then a lot of us privileged people expect for them to do it all in some unconscious way, but they're already under-resourced. And the, and the other activists who have been fighting for years, they're tired. We all need to get involved because like just one example, the Salish Sea orcas, the J, K, and L pods, they are dying at a rapid rate right now of starvation. They are starving to death. Scarlet, a four-year-old orca, died a couple weeks ago of starvation. And then uh, probably a lot of other people saw the photo of Taliqua, the orca mother who is pushing her dead baby for 17 days over a thousand miles on a tour of grief. And she didn't eat during that time because at this point, the orcas are saying, look at us, look at us. You are starving our children. We are dying. Are you going to do something? Are you going to take action? There are four dams on the Lower Snake River. These dams need to be breached because sockeye salmon cannot spawn. Sockeye salmon are the only food source of the JK and L pods in the Salish Sea. There is public commentary periods open to say we want these dams breached. Do you, like, do you not think of a million of us, two million of us? I mean, what, we have over, over 330 million people in this country. Even if 10% of us actually said, get rid of those dams, we would have a chance. This is what I'm talking about. And there's a million things, like there's a million things like this with the orcas. And so I really say for people out there, get involved locally and get involved in what you're so damn passionate about. The thing that's going to wake you up in the morning, the things that, that you can't not talk about at Thanksgiving dinner, like the things that you just are burning inside of you. We need you. We need everybody to really, really, really get involved. And I know that we can have victories. I don't think we're going to have a victory over climate change. I do not believe that we are going to solve climate change. I was watching the ice melt this summer. I don't believe that we're going to have the majority of icebergs and glaciers left in 10 years. So that's not, I don't, I don't think, I'm not to say we shouldn't, we shouldn't do anything about climate change. I'm just saying, I don't want to give people a false hope that somehow like we're going to solve it. I don't, right. I don't think so that's So many the of truth. the changes are already in motion. We're looking right. at what, yeah, what we've done of, already has yeah. already projecting, you know, hundreds of years down the road and right. And I'm right, right. there with you. And I, I just want to add too, you know, as you're talking about getting involved and as we're wrapping up the show, I saw those posts about the orcas on Instagram, and I think it's so important to get involved actually in person. You know, if you see something on mm -hmm. Instagram, that's great. But like when you show up at a meeting, when you show up in person, yeah. it's so much more powerful. Yeah. And, and people are so sick of even government officials are so sick of dealing with everything online that when you actually show up to talk to someone, mm -hmm. and I know mm -hmm. this from things that I've had to do, you know, here in Los Angeles and to, and to work to make change in my own neighborhood it makes a huge difference. And so I, you know, I think it's so important for mm -hmm. everyone listening to know that like, mm -hmm. it's important to care, but it's also important to not just like click like and then, you know, move on with the next yeah. thing in your day. Right. Collectivism is not 
collectivism is not the way we're going to get out of it. You know, it's, it's just not as much as we wish it was, but just like, you know, we, we take time to brush our teeth and go to Starbucks or whatever we do. We just have to carve out a chunk to get involved. And I think that we can, we can really do both. We can get involved on a political nitty gritty level and we can also get involved in the reciprocity with nature and with the wilderness or with the 17 acres by our house or whatever that is. They actually go hand in hand. They feed each other. Because then imagine you go to your your oak tree or your special spot in, you know, with the natural world and you say, oak, mama, oak, mama, oak, listen, like I I, I went to this meeting today and like tell, tell the forest that, tell the ocean that, whoever it is that you connect with on a natural in a natural way with the, with the earth, they know, like, I truly believe that the forest knows every time I get involved in something working for their behalf, they know that's reciprocity. So it, it, it does come back to our connection with nature to be able to fight in the human realms for them and to give them a voice in these ways. And so I really believe one feeds the other and just inner work and outer work. Let's do it simultaneously Let's get our, build our reciprocal relationship connection with the earth and let's also get politicized and let's work on our inner wounding and all the BS and the addiction to consumerism. And let's also work in service of something other than ourselves. And I think we can just continue to juggle those things. And, and that's at least for me, the best way that I've figured out for myself how to move forward. It's always a juggling act. It's challenging every day, but hell I'm alive for now. And this is what I, this is, this is for me the most passionate way to be alive. And that's, that's how I want to live. So yeah, I'll, uh, I'll put a pin in it at that point. (laughs) Ayana, I love your passion so much. I love the work you're doing. Mm. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to finally been able to speak with you. I feel Mm. like we could talk for probably hours. (laughs) Um, but so, you know, just before we go, tell us and tell the, you know, everyone where, they can follow uh, your podcast, your next project. What are yeah. you working on? Give us the whole mm-hmm. rundown. Okay. So you can find us at forthewild.world, not .com.org, but forthewild.world. And there you can learn about the 1 Million Redwoods Project. You can learn about our podcast that you can also subscribe on iTunes. You could also learn about this new project, a new spinoff series that we're doing about issues regarding the temperate rainforest and salmon and old growth forest. And it started with the Tongass project. And so you may see it like that on the website, but it's been built into so much more than that. So please head over there, sign up for our newsletter. And we are always looking for contributions as a nonprofit. We have an incredible team of soulmates who literally work without (laughs) break for far too long, slacking about all of these issues to try to figure out and I'm Slack is like this little um, app to to do remote conversations, not slacking in the other way. But uh, yeah, so it's, you know, we're, we're a team of people who care really deeply and we really need the support of others to keep this work going because this is not, uh, it's, it's not the popular capitalist route, but we firmly believe in it and we really believe in getting involved and also providing education and content and uplifting voices of the resistance so that we can all just link arms and do this thing together because there's a lot of there's a lot of strength in numbers and there's also a lot of joy in doing this work together 
so yeah, fo- follow us. Um, oh, our Instagram is four dot the dot wild. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. So we're out there and we want to, we want to know, we want to know you guys. So, um, yeah, get a hold of us in a number, numerous ways. Thank you so much, Ayana. And I hope to have the opportunity to come visit yeah. you maybe in person sometime. Yes, that'd be wonderful. Thank you so much, Jennifer. This has been lovely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please don't forget to leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head on over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for the show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damien Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll be back soon with a new episode.